All right, everybody, welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, coming back at you again. Um, in case you guys are tuning in for the first time, this show covers all things innovation, creativity, ideas, um, especially in the business community, in the world, and people who are doing amazing things that we can all learn uh, a thing or two from. And today, uh, we have a very, very awesome guest. Uh, say hello, Skinner Lane. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Um, I, I, I enjoy saying your name. I have to admit that. Um, Skinner just seems like such a cool, like, tough guy game. Like, you have a, a switchblade comb. I just keep picturing one of those things where it just pops out and you comb your hair back. Um, yes, I take it with me wherever I go. It's, it's a good thing to have. You know, it can ward off attacks and also keep you stylish. <laughs> um, but I guess for, for the rest of the audience, um, can you kind of give us the 101 on who Skinner Lane is? Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm, I've been an entrepreneur for my whole adult life. Um, I, I started out thinking I wanted to go into law and politics, and by the time I got to the end of my university studies, I decided that I'd spent enough time in the classroom and um, I'd been around politics enough to decide that uh, that's not how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. So I, when I finished college, I moved to Texas and started getting involved in, uh, in technology startups. And that was a sort of winding road that eventually led me to Chile, where I've been now for seven years. And um, I, I was working, when I first got here, I was doing private equity consulting uh, because there wasn't any startup scene at all when I first got here. And then after a couple of years of that, I decided to uh, think of other things to do because I found myself in rooms with just you know lawyers and bankers. Right. And um, it, while it was interesting work, it wasn't that exciting. So uh, that led me to a path that eventually uh, became Exosphere, which uh, we've been now going strong with for the last two years in you know active real operations. And uh, so that's kind of my brief life story. Um, and and it's it's chock filled with goodness. Um... What uh, so we'll get into Exosphere in a, in a second. I know you've been in the startup and innovation space for quite some time with that, and and obviously previous. What where does real change happen in politics or in the entrepreneurial ecosystem? <laughs> well, um, I I think that good change usually is happening in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Uh, there. I think we see a lot of bad change in other parts of the world right now, uh, politics included. But uh, the, I think the life of all of the innovation and um, I, I think the real attempts at problem solving are happening in, in the entrepreneurial world and the science world. Uh, and you know, that's why my goal is bringing those two together more and more. 
Well, surprisingly, you know, I, I spent some time with the Chilean consulate uh, last year at South by Southwest, and I had never been more blown away by a presentation at a at a cocktail party <laughs> than I was by the Chilean um, presentation because they showed the startup ecosystem and, you know, the amount of money per capita and just like the, the bubbling ecosystem. How did you discover opportunity to even go to Chile and, and then, I guess, kind of like talk about what you are actually doing there with with exosphere sure well i as i said when i moved here this was um before startup chile happened so uh this was a couple of years before there was any entrepreneurial ecosystem in chile but um when i when the inverted yield curve appeared in the u.s bond market uh in late 2006 early 2007 uh, i i started thinking that things were probably not going to keep going so well in the US and then when I heard all of the the financial talking heads say, Oh well, now everything has changed, the inverted yield curve doesn't predict recessions anymore, you can just ignore it. I I knew then that uh that it was probably going to go very badly, uh, because well, it's it's like Warren Buffett says, right. um, be be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. So I decided that that was the time to start looking outside of the U.S. And Chile is uh, is a pretty unique country. It has extremely stable macroeconomic and political conditions, by far the most stable in Latin America. Uh, it has a very free market economy. Some of the, it has the most bilateral free trade agreements of any country in the world. And quite uniquely, it is in the the ten lowest countries for uh, its public debt to GDP ratio. So all of those factors combined, um, along with the good weather, very low crime rates, um, you know, high quality of life, um, and really and really good food. I, I also overate at that at, a, at that event. It's probably why I was more blown away by the presentation. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, and so I all those factors added up. There, there are really few places in the world that uh, that I think have that mix of environmental factors and uh and here in Ch- central chile we also have no mosquitoes so that's kind of a, no. a nice thing after living in arkansas and texas my whole life i know i think you should have started with that that's probably the <laughs> one of the best things so i'm, I'm going to read something um our mission is to provide an institutional framework to support our members in their endeavors connect them with aligned collaborators and enhance their chances of success just as importantly we are here to help them recover and restart from failure. Um, that is part of the Exosphere mission. Um, can you? Can, uh, I, I'm particularly obsessed by the last statement, but can you just kind of dive into um, the, you know, the Exosphere as a product, as an experience, as a thing that you've been able to create and found there? Sure. Well, we we describe Exosphere as a learning and problem solving community. Uh, and no matter what programs or other businesses or other things that we do, uh, that's really the core of who we are. Uh, we're a community of people who uh, have not only decided that the entrepreneurial path is uh, is better than the traditional path uh, for for career and making money and, and these sort of things, but but also that the entrepreneurial path requires a, a real dedication to one's own mind and personal growth. 
uh, as the as the core or the foundation for that path. And so we've we've established ourselves to provide uh, different sorts of educational experiences from um, short two-day workshops to uh, two-month uh, boot camps that we do here in Chile to help people get going on their entrepreneurial journey. Uh, we've also done programs in uh, science, uh, for example, in uh, Budapest this past uh, July, we did a three-week program around the space elevator, had uh, uh, physicists, engineers uh, from all over the world uh, working on problems uh, surrounding the space elevator. And and so we, we use these experiences to bring people together to work on real problems facing the world and to pursue real opportunities uh, that, that could become profitable businesses. Uh, but the the path to, towards that, we believe, is is through looking first at the individual person and helping them understand themselves, helping them uh, to to see the parts of themselves that they need to bring out more and the parts of themselves that they probably need to work on a bit. I was just going to say, like, I mean, I think about this last statement, right? Just as importantly, we're here to help them recover and re- and restart after failure, you know, because a lot goes into a person at that moment, right? It's not just, all right, let's fold up the papers and, and start over. It is an emotional journey, especially once you've put, you know, your time, money, energy, effort, heart, belief into something. Um, you know, I can I can see where the, the personal side of what you guys do is valuable. Can you kind of speak a little bit more to how that couples with the business journey? Sure. Well, I mean, we've we've had a number of people who have come to some of our programs just after uh, a failed startup, and the the actually they they're the people who seem to get the absolute most out of the program because they know uh, they know just how hard it is. Uh, not only the, the process of starting something itself, but than watching it all fall apart. And so we, we think that, I mean, if you look out in, in the world, you see a lot of people that are generally held up as um, overnight successes, uh, but most of them were toiling away in obscurity for a long period of time. Um, you know, Dropbox is, is one of my favorite examples because they, they started you know, 2007, and it, it took them years and years before they were really mainstream. And um, and most startups, even the ones that didn't officially fail, um, endured failure and restart inside um, a number of times. And and there there just aren't that many examples of people who never went through a failure. So we we know that that one failure doesn't mean you're going to fail forever. It just means that you have a lot of lessons to learn uh, and to to recover from. And that's really hard to do alone, uh, right. it, it, the, because it's quite painful. And usually, when you fail, you do find yourself completely alone, because uh, unfortunately, the world is full of fair weather friends. That's very and true. And we've seen a lot of people who say, "You know, I don't want to quit. I know this is what I'm supposed to do with my life, but I, I can't, I can't take that next, that first step again." Um, without a little bit of help. And, and so this is, this is a really important part of, of who we are and what we're building. 
When does when does because I, I struggle with with the idea of failure or the many different concepts around failure? Like fail hard, fail fast, have fun doing it. Like it, it's not a fun process, right? And and no. you know, in a lot of cases, it wastes. Uh, you know, it can waste a lot of resources. And I mean, you can go back to the Thomas Edison quote: "I just found ten thousand ways to not make a light bulb." Um, but at the at the end of the day, like it is, it is a real thing, right? We we celebrate it, and I feel like we celebrate it a little too much um you, you know i and i don't know what your personal belief is on the necessity of failure I, I, yes it happens but you know is it a, a necessary tool for success well I, I definitely think the startup world has recently fetishized failure a bit too much um i i think that when it happens, it, it, you have to deal with it, but I don't think that it's something that's inevitable or even positive. If you can avoid it, um, then the, I, I don't really, I see no need for unnecessary suffering in life. Um, there, there's a lot of, there's plenty of necessary suffering. Um, so why layer on that anything that isn't necessary? And uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the reasons that startups fail or that entrepreneurs fail are, are are predictable reasons. They can be avoided. It's not. Uh, it, it, in, in fact, I would say that probably most startups fail for very predictable reasons. One of them being co-founders getting into unresolvable disputes with each other, and that's another one of the the things that we really spend a lot of time with uh, here at Exospheres, learning how to to work with other people and to to overcome those differences and transcend them rather than getting into fights that um, that break up business is that is that a is that a primary reason it's it's funny like that that doesn't come to the top of mind for me when i think of why startups fail right it's you know it's usually tied to like the business model or you know a competitor in the space or just whatever other sort of on paper reason but i i've never really thought about the clash between or potential clash between co-founders yeah, I, I mean, I would say, I mean, it's not just clashes between co-founders, but I mean, the, the, all of the human dynamics uh, are, well, if you have a combative CEO who's getting in fights with his coders or getting in fights with his customers, um, then you, you're, you have a recipe for failure. And so all of these other things that, uh, that you see, business model problems um, or other competitors or things like this, this is a failure of the people to adapt quickly enough, and a lot of the things that keep people from adapting are conflicts with the people they work with. Uh, so I, I, I see almost all of the problems that, that, you, that you commonly say, oh, this is what causes failure. If you dig below too much, you get to a people problem, whether it's the attitude of one person or the conflicts between a couple of people. Um, can a leopard change its spots in that in that regard? Right, like if you are a, a jerk of a CEO, but you're you know you're a brilliant idea person. You know what is? Can you train that person to to become a little bit more zen like, or is it more building an ecosystem around that person, or both? Or you know what what are some potential solutions? Yeah, it, it's definitely a combination of, of both of those things. Um, I mean. There are some, I think there, there are certainly some people who have uh, a certain attitude that they probably won't ever get over. Uh, but most people, I think, are quite capable of, 
well, I, I always use the phrase getting over yourself. Um, if you can get over yourself, you can do lots of great things. Uh, but as long as you're still stuck on yourself, it's going to be pretty tough to do much of any, of any good or use. Uh, I don't know if you guys get HBO out there and uh, the show Silicon Valley, but the towards towards the end of season one, there was like they were at TechCrunch Disrupt, and it was everybody was like, "We are changing the world through you know cloud-based computing," and every everyone's pitch started with, "We are changing the world." Um, what is the exosphere definition of changing the world? Right, like I, I see that as part of your mission, but like what happens in the ecosystem what kind of companies come on board and and i love that there's a people angle to it you know what else goes into the pot to sort of make make your secret sauce well our our motto here is uh, disturb the universe which is a bit different than change the world um it uh, it actually comes from a a line uh of a poem by t.s Eliot called the love song of j alfred proofrock and uh, in the poem, it's phrased as a rhetorical question. Do I dare disturb the universe? And, and so our answer is yes, disturb the universe. And what that means for us is not like, oh, you're going to go out and, you know, solve all the big problems of the world and, and all the things that I think entrepreneurs get kind of starry-eyed about and end up fooling themselves into thinking they're doing more than they are sometimes. But... For us, disturb the universe means saying, hey, I'm here, I exist, and my life is going to matter. It's going to matter to somebody else. And, and so we, we try to help people to think about who they want to help and why they want to help them. Um, wh- whoever those customers are, um, identify them as real people and figure out what, what's so motivating to help those particular people with that particular problem. And, and then we, we help to empower our members with uh, connections in, in the scientific community. And, and we, we see ourselves a lot as a bridge between the entrepreneurial world and the scientific world. So we, we want to bring the people who actually have the tools and knowledge to truly change the world together with the people who have the energy and the business know-how to, uh, to take those uh, world-changing technologies to market. That's, that's amazing. Um, how do you identify your participants, right? Because I, I feel like people have to be the right kinds of people to be an exosphere participant or member. Um, and what is sort of your, your process of vetting to see if somebody's like, you know, I, I always think about this idea of like, there's great business ideas and then there's great passionate ideas that people, uh, you know, are shepherding. So, and I think the passion means you'll do more, you know, exercises and, um, uh, just ex- personal exploration than you would if you're like, okay, this makes business sense on paper. So, I mean, what is the criteria that you look for in pulling in participants? Sure. Well, we we don't uh, we actually don't vet their ideas. We're not very interested in what people's ideas are. Uh, we're much more interested in the person. Uh, so we we look for people who are who seem to be genuinely humble, who are curious about the world, uh, because. You know, people that are just interested in making money uh, and aren't don't have any other curiosities tend not to make very good entrepreneurs. Uh, but people who are reading a lot of different kinds of books, um, paying attention to different sorts of developments that are happening either in technology or uh, or business, 
those kind of people that, that say, you know, I want to know more about what's going on, even if I, I'm never going to be an expert. Like, I, I'm, I'm genuinely eager to learn. That To us, those are the, the traits that matter absolutely the most. It doesn't matter if somebody's shy and introverted or boisterous and extroverted. It doesn't matter if they're uh, a science person or if they have no interest at all in science and they just want to uh, go meet with customers and, and promote the, the product that they're selling. It, it really doesn't matter what kind of background they come from. If they are humble and curious, then it, that's something to work with. How long, how much time did you spend on developing this model, right? Because you think about, I mean, at, the, at its core, you know, you think about an incubator, an accelerator, you know, even a lot of corporate accelerators and just the, the whole startup ecosystem and entrepreneurial ecosystem has a lot of tools and resources and entities available to make dreams come true. Um, how much time did you spend on like, hey, what, what can we create here that's really special and unique? Well, I, I guess I've been thinking about these things for the last 10 years of, of my life because when I got into the startup world, I immediately noticed that there was no, there wasn't, especially at that time, um, a, a great support network for for the individuals themselves. And then as as time went on and I saw, you know, some you know, certain kinds of organizations popping up and doing different things. Um, I I sort of was taking my notes and saying, you know, if if I were to ever do something like this, I would do this differently or that differently, and then and so that kind of got got us to our the MVP that we launched two years ago, and then we've um, we've been doing a lot of different formats and a lot of different programs in these two years, and so we've been iterating and honing the the process uh, each time. Uh, so nobody has ever gone to one of our programs and gotten the exact same experience that the the people before them got because we we're really aggressive in updating and upgrading everything that we do each time. Will you always be in beta or do you I mean I, I know that's a theory in terms of you know just development period um but or or do you feel like you'll net out at a thing that you can plateau and bank on? Well, I think that it's sort of like I mean I think that Organizational improvement, just like personal growth, uh, could sort of be described um, like the mathematical concept, the asymptote. Like we're always getting closer, but we'll never quite reach um, where we want to be. Uh, this is an interesting point. Are your actions really matching your daydreams? Which is a, a giant quote on on uh, your website. Um, what does that mean, and and what's a, a litmus test for it? Well, m- most daydreams, um, they, they see all of the good things that somebody wants to do, um, but don't really take account for, for the, the difficult or unpleasant things that have to be done. And so I think that the, the answer to that can be uh, determined with whether somebody is able to break away from the, the great vision in their head and the idle talk and uh, to to do the the hard slog uh as we we often refer to it which is you know sending those you know dozens and dozens of emails to prospective clients or investors picking up the phone and calling people 
dealing with, uh, you know, the overdue bills and all of the things that happen to entrepreneurs that they don't think will happen to them um, and dealing with them anyway and being able to get up, get out of bed and solve at least one or two problems a day. And for me, my, my own litmus test for myself is um, I when I wake up in the morning, whatever it is that I dread doing the most, uh, I if I, I know that I'm matching my actions with my daydreams if I do that thing first. Uh, and and I, it's one of my few pieces of true advice uh, <laughs> that I, I, I always give is if you have something you're dreading doing, do it now because uh, otherwise it will become more urgent and less uh, less easy to do as it goes on. Yeah, there, there's a quote, and I'm going to botch it, but it's something like, eat, eat the frog first. You know, it's like you're looking at everything that you you want to eat, and it's all this delicious stuff on the table, and then there's like that ugly frog that you actually have to eat, but you, you keep saving it for later, can actually ruin the rest of the meal, right? And because you're, you spend yes. the whole time dreading it. Well, yes, yeah, I mean, it's essentially the the marshmallow experiment um, that that was done on children where they were where the psychologist was uh, giving them a marshmallow and saying, if you eat this marshmallow, or I'm going to leave the room. If you want to eat this marshmallow, you can. But if I come back and you haven't eaten it, then I'll give you a second marshmallow. And uh, this test, they, they followed the, the children from the experiment um, 20 years later and found that the children that they were all uh, waited and got the second marshmallow, uh, they, they were much more productive. They had fewer divorces, less alcoholism, you know, higher incomes, all these kind of things. So this ability to delay gratification, to um, to do the hard things now and, and save the, the pleasant things for later really does predict success in life. That's hard, though, because you, you think about, like, we're building a culture that is all about immediacy, right? If you look at what digital technology allows us to do, um, you know, having a conversation and looking up the truth right then at dinner, as opposed to just having a conversation about the thing um, or, you know, the immediate of social media or building an audience like I think there is this sort of microwaving of culture um, that is a good yeah. one I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down microwaving of culture uh, but no it, it like it, you're if you're almost fighting an uphill battle in the sense of the delayed gratification and trying to teach that to the companies that, that come on board with what you guys are doing yes it, it's very difficult um, and I, I about a year and a half ago I um, I came back from uh, doing a tour of our workshop in Europe, and I I didn't have a, a phone the whole time I was in Europe. I mean, I had my wa- only when I was on Wi-Fi, and um, and so when I got back to Chile, I decided to turn off. I, I was quite used to having my my mental space completely uninvaded, and so it was a bit shocking when I got back and my phone was constantly buzzing. So I decided at the at the phone level, I turned off all apps from being able to give me any notifications and it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. My, my productivity has soared. I, when I need to check my email, I go in and click on the, the email icon and when I want to check if I have Facebook messages, I have to go looking for them. No, I'm, uh, uh, it doesn't tell me to do anything. 
I'm the exact same way. It's like I, I turn off everything because I figure I'm going to check it anyway, right? I've already developed the habit and I don't need okay. like a constant <laughs> notification to make me do it even more. And I think that's also the, you know, the beautiful side of the technology is that you actually, I mean, if you pay attention to it, I know you guys have touched on, you know, I think you have an advisor that's part of the sing, uh, Singularity University and, you know, sort of you move to the quantified self and the ability to use the technology to actually have more harmony versus you know, being overconnected all the time. Yes. I mean, the, the, these tools only do what we want them to do. Um, a, a computer can only do what it's programmed to do. And um, so we get to choose whether we program the computer or it programs us. Um, but it's, it's our choice. It's the user's choice. And, and it's, it's something that we, we really do work hard with uh, the people that come to us to, to help them undo some of those bad mental habits that um, that keep them the, the slave of reaction to others, other people rather than being proactive and setting their own agenda for their day. Do you see time. do you see a lot of tears at your uh, at your events? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, at times, yes. I, would, uh, I, and I, I and say that jokingly, but I, I think it would be like, I mean, it's you're kind of like being torn apart a little bit. Yes, I mean, all, you know, it, mental growth is, is just like physical growth. When you, if you want to lift weights and grow your muscles, you have to tear down your muscles. Um, and the same is true of the mind. And so it has its pain. Um, so... You used to write speeches for a senator. Um, I don't know if any of your dislike of politics came out in the things you wrote. That would be funny. But um, I'm curious as to how, you know, what, because I think it takes a sort of an empathetic person to be able to write in the voice of another person. I spent some years as a writer for television and things like that. So, you know, you're always capturing the voice of a character. What sort of empathy have you learned to, uh, you know, take from that world and apply to what you're doing now? Well, I mean, it's, it's really impossible to do anything effective with people if you, if you can't um, empathize with them and put them, put yourself in their shoes. And uh, it's probably the reason that psychology has become my, you know, the thing that I read the most about, because uh, to, to understand another person and understand why they think the way they think uh, enables you to understand why they don't do something the way you would have done it, um, and then not let that make you angry or upset, but to say, okay, I understand why why this is going on. Let me see. Let me see if we can find some common ground to communicate here, uh, and that it also starts by understanding your own psychology, which uh, is is just as important. But if you, if you don't have that empathy, if you're not willing to pause and, and figure out uh, what's going on in the other person's mind, I mean, you can never completely figure it out, but at least try. That The effort itself is usually recognized and, and allows some common ground to be formed in almost any scenario. And, and I, I think that that opens the door for people being more empowered to do the things that they're really good at doing and the things that they want to do um, and and not be forced constantly to do only things that they don't like doing. So I, I, I always discourage people from taking on projects where 90% of the work is going to be something that they're not good at and they don't like. I, uh, it, it seems like 
inviting an uphill struggle. And and that's also very difficult for some people because they say, well, you know, like this is I, this is what you know it seems like I'm supposed to do based on everything I'm reading and seeing other people doing. Uh, and, and I say yes, but you, you know, you have to find your path. You have to find the thing that you should be doing right now. And also, this is really important. Don't try to find the thing you're supposed to do with your whole life because we change. We're 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 not the same person from one day to the next. So the best we can do is figure out what am I supposed to be doing right now? What what's the best use of my time and talents now? And and that that requires a lot of of empathy to uh, to help people work through that because it's always so tempting to project yourself and your own wants and needs onto other people, and so fighting that is a is a really difficult discipline. Uh, when you think when you talk about you know, kind of honing in on that one thing that you're good at. We, we talk a lot on the show about superpowers, right? And everyone sort of having that one thing that they can knock out of the park like nobody else can, or maybe it's a couple of things, but have you identified your own superpower? And if so, what is it? Uh, I'm, I, yes, I guess I'm, I'm pretty good at helping people get into the thing that they that they thrive at doing, um, maybe more than anything else. Um, the ability to recognize talent that maybe the person uh, themselves doesn't recognize uh, and say, hey, I think you would be good at this. Why don't you give it a try? Um, and and I, I think that's why we've also been able to grow uh, so fast here at Exosphere because not a lot of people wasting time doing things that they really they, they really hate or they're not good at. Uh, that's awesome, and and you're also a um, classical music aficionado. I, I I read a little bit. Um, you have this interesting blog, and your writings are very uh, peculiar in a good way. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> it's I could tell it's like the early, the, you know, those first series of thoughts that come out in the morning, uh, just as like a, a stream of consciousness. But there's this one specifically you wrote about the idea of what music is. Right. And how it's a universal language and how it also translates into life. Right. Like and how we exist as individuals. So uh, I w- uh, I'm not going to try to explain it, but I would love for you to give the abbreviated version of the points you were making in that in that entry. Sure. Well, I think that we in life and I, I'm speaking personally, but I, I, I do think that um, I'm not the only person with this experience. but. Uh, in my life, my moments of pain have often been uh, trying to get back something that I had before that I really liked or trying to sustain something in a, in a moment that uh, was really good, uh, even though circumstances were moving things along. And you know, everything in life is a transition from one thing to another, everything. And music is like this, you know, the... The beauty of music is not one chord in isolation. The beauty of music is the transition uh, and the progression of chords. So uh, understanding that each chord, even the dissonant chords, are necessary to make the beautiful music uh, is, I think, a useful metaphor in life when, when transitioning from one of those happy, relieving moments to something that doesn't seem so nice uh it doesn't really do any good to wish 
to go back. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't really admire a violinist who uh, just stayed on one particular note because he likes that note. You know, it would it, it sounds even like a ridiculous proposition to speak. Well, so we should probably see the evolution of life and our own lives and our own transitions in the same way. Um, what what will be or what has been your opus? Uh, in music. <laughs> or if, you, if, if, if music is life and vice versa, you know, in, yeah. in this metaphorical sense. Um, I think about the movie Mr. Holland's opus, which uh, it just keeps yeah. popping to my head, um, which it was another tearjerker. I, cry, I cried when I watched that and I cry, I'll cry when I come to your thing. Um, but yeah, like what I mean, what would you consider, you know, or what are you headed towards that you feel like this is the, you know, the thing that Skinner Lane's sort of, I don't know, legend will be <laughs> will be based on? What will be on your tombstone like what's the what's the the mr lane's opus well i hope that it's that uh, exosphere becomes um the institution that can serve the 21st century um because all the institutions that we have that have sustained communal life and civilized life uh for the last hundreds and you know maybe even a couple thousand years uh, they've all been based on having answers, um, all of them. The church says, you know, if you don't like our answers, you go to hell. Schools and universities say, if you don't like our answers, then we don't give you this piece of paper that says that you can be a productive member of economic life. Um, the state says, if you don't like our answers, then we send men with guns to take you to jail. Uh, and and I, I think that we, we need to get past this um, this idea that, any institution can hold the answers. And so what we're trying to do at Exosphere is build an institution uh, where questioning can take place and where there are people around who can help each other think about the questions of life and come to their own conclusions and uh, continue to update their maps of reality uh, as as time goes on and information evolves. Uh, because we... I, I I really dread the thought of, of a society where we have no such uh, framework, where we have nothing to fall back on, nothing, no no place to go, um, other than, you know, Starbucks, <laughs> which you know I, I joke that Starbucks is sort of the closest thing to a 21st institution that we have, and and to me that's kind of a sad statement. How, well, how's how's Starbucks the the twenty first century institution? And that is sad, but uh, I'm curious as well, to how it works. It's because it's a, uh, I mean, it's a place where people go to to talk, but to talk about not much, and um, you have to pay to get in uh, at every every time, and the it, it sort of breeds a shallowness. I mean, it's a representation, I think, of the shallowness of, of contemporary culture. And there there just aren't many places to go to genuinely think where your thoughts are not going to be sort of judged as right or wrong or in line with the consensus or out of line with the consensus. Uh, because the more that we, we see the need for consensus, the fewer opportunities we will find for innovation. You know, science is built 
uh, progress in science is built on scientists violating consensus with experiment and proving consensus wrong with experiment. And so, to me, scientists and entrepreneurs are, are, are both doing the same work, which is showing, not telling, that things can be done a better way. And, and so that, that's our hope, is to, to help those kind of people um, find the support that they need to ask those questions and kind of have refuge from the, the shouting masses who say, no, you're messing everything up. Because usually the change that innovation brings forward is uh, something that some people are going to say is messing everything up. Uh, yeah, tell it to Uber. Um, I think about your. I mean, you touched on something that's really interesting. Is um, you know, our way is the best way, or this way is the best way, and I think that is very. You know, I'll I'll say because I live here, uh, American, right? And like, and I, and I think you know, we think we are the best innovators, and very rarely, even in this connected world we live in, you know, you look to places like Chile or, you know, Shoreditch in the UK or, you know, any other region of the world, you can find a pocket of like amazing thinking and doing, um, you know, what have you seen or what kind of attracts you uh, from the Chilean side or maybe even other areas of the world that you've been that, you know, culturally more so than a, from a business ecosystem, but like, what have you seen that, the, you know, the attitudes towards innovation and ideas and, you know, brilliance and science and all these things that you're, you're um, bringing to the table? Well, I, I mean, there, there is, there is a lot of brain power in the rest of the world. I mean, if you, if you just look at the population distribution of the world, then you see that uh, and, and then you compare that to an IQ distribution, you would see that 90% of the, uh, the world's geniuses live outside of the U.S. and Europe. Um, I mean, that's just a, a basic statistical analysis. So you um, just call you just call America and, stupid? No, uh, <laughs> the, what I the, it's just that like the, what what the U.S. does. Uh, it does with a very small percentage of the brain power of the world, which makes it very impressive. Um, and and indeed, my uh, my non-American friends here, um, they've taken to calling uh, Americans Martians because they, like it's true that uh, we just do things very very differently. We think very differently. Our whole system is organized differently. And there are some really great parts of that. Um, but. I is thinking that, uh, therefore, it is the only way and is the best place uh, to do any of these things. When in reality, you know, I think that the inward-looking and parochial nature of American culture um, has led to a lot of brain power being wasted on solving, you know, first-world problems, we could say. And... If you if you don't have any contact with the problems that occur everywhere else in the world, you don't know that they need to be solved. So, one of our our goals is to help find you know, some of these brilliant people in the rest of the world and help them see that they they too can can be put uh, to solving the the real problems. That they don't have to go to San Francisco to do it. Uh, that there are other places and other options for them. And I think that's really important for a lot of people. One, because 
it's very difficult um, for all the smartest people to just move to the U.S. from an immigration standpoint, from a cost standpoint, but also, uh, and this is always a shock to my, my dear friends in the Valley, not everybody wants to live in Silicon Valley. And, what? Uh, and <laughs> so there, there are people who want to do things in other parts of the world, and, and our, our goal is to help them to do that and have the, the support that they would have if they went to the Valley, but um, wherever they happen to be instead. Speaking of going to other places, tell me about this uh, space elevator. I've I've heard whispers and rumors and seen mock ups of it, but uh, you're the first person I've talked to who's actually touched it in some way. Well, the space elevator is um, it, it's one of these concepts that is that came to us from science fiction, and uh, and that we I think that all space aficionados um, have kind of dreams about the the problem. The main problem facing the space elevator is the uh, the lack of a material strong enough uh, to to build it and withstand all of the wind because you're talking about a tether that goes all the way outside of uh, the Earth's atmosphere and into orbit, into lower Earth orbit, which is quite quite long. So uh, the the project itself uh, will probably be something that nobody will take on until the materials problem is solved. Uh, but there, there's still quite a few other problems that uh, um, many of them are actually legal and political problems um, that will be barriers to its construction. But if it, if it were to be built, it would dramatically change the cost structure of putting things into orbit, putting payloads into orbit and, and other things like this. So it's something that, uh, that we... We really do want to uh, to see stay on the the tongues of of the people talking about science and space because uh, as long as it remains out there in open discourse, I think progress can be made toward it. But uh, you know, it, it, it's it's like anything. If people stop talking about it, then it's forgotten. So our goal with the program was provide a a forum and framework for for people to do some real research and and keep it out there in, in the public dialogue. I think the biggest problem is what if you have to go to the bathroom while you're on the elevator? That's I think that problem yes, needs to be solved. It is a very long ride. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the show is called Innovation Crush. Um, I'm, you sound like you've seen a lot of things uh, in a lot of different places from a lot of different people. What is something that you see out there right now that you are personally crushing on? It could come from your musical side. It could come from your day-to-day work. And maybe it's family. But what is something that you see like, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. I wish I was involved in that. Or it's just a great idea. Well, uh, I, I would say right now it's it would be artificial intelligence. Um, it's something that we're very excited about here. Um, there's it's going to be one of those enabling technologies that makes so many other things um, basically break down into to small problems that are solvable in short periods of time. Uh, we're doing a, a one-week program in November. Um, uh, an artificial intelligence nexus uh, here uh, at our headquarters in Chile because we're we're so excited about the subject and uh, I think that it's going to to be something we spend a lot of time uh, and work with a lot in the future. What will humanity do when you know we have so many problems being solved you know by artificial intelligence? 
you know, I feel like man always needs a problem to solve. Like, will, like, will we go and expand into bigger problems or more like minutia or more creative or, or do we not know? I, I mean, I think that it's always one of those things that um, you, you don't see until it's like climbing a mountain. You know, when you, if you're out in the wilderness, you're climbing a mountain and you, you see, okay, well, when I get to the top, then that's it. And you get to the top and you realize there's another taller mountain that you couldn't see before because it was obscured by the one you were scaling at the moment. Uh, I think that technological progress almost always operates like this. We say, oh, well, but what would we do if we didn't have this work to do? Um, and, and then we get, get there and say, oh, well, it's because we didn't see all this other work there is to do. So I, I'm not, I, you know, humanity has a lot of problems, so I, I'm not so concerned that we're going to run out of them. Good point. <laughs> uh, so last but not least, um, breathe this whole conversation in, you know, uh, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is... Innovation to me is the intersection of different minds thinking about different problems and comparing notes with each other. That's great. That's really great. Uh, well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. This has been well, thank fun. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure being with you, and uh, I hope that you can make it down to visit us here in Chile sometime. Hey, man, the, I, the closest I've gotten so far is Chili's, which um, that's a very different experience. So, <laughs> not uh, quite the same. <laughs> not quite the same, it, although it does bring me to tears. So that's this three three times I'm crying this episode. Uh, but no, thank you so much. Um, where can people find out more about you, more about Exosphere? Where can they go online? Sure. Our, our website is exosphe.re. Got it. And um, and that, that just about does it. So thank you again, uh, everyone. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>